0: The <laughs> I sound better this week. New oh, yeah. microphone, Tim. I sound good to you. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now okay. we're on the radio bit. Okay, see there we go. I got this. Got this old mic working. So uh, finally, finally uh, had to go to had to go to t- Plan B as far as the uh, the equipment goes. But we're good. We're good. Well, we're handling.
1: One of us knew that there was a MIDI control. You just told me about this. Yeah, I We've been sitting in front of Max for twenty five years. <laughs> and one of us knew there's some this whole MIDI yeah. thing in there. So yeah. Know. Yeah. news to me it's weird it's a yeah there's a
0: midi controller so uh, I figured that out and got it all working so here we are um and uh we should talk first about the uh the passings in the last week and a half there were four the most momentous obviously being olivia de haviland ah. uh well past 100 what was she almost 100 uh, she just turned 104
1: 105 whatever it was i i, I lose was track born, yeah. after 100 yeah, born in 1916 in tokyo japan of isn't all that places. crazy Hope you to have um, yeah the whole thing there her sister all of that and and, and, that, and like, i'm team joan
0: i'm team joan you know i i've, joan I've uh, always been joan fontaine uh and, and joan fontaine and olivia de Havilland didn't speak for the last gosh what was it like uh uh 50 years of their lives or 60 years of their lives but uh, Joan Fontaine always used to joke. Um, she will probably about Olivia. She will be furious if I die, if I when I die, or if I die first because I did it first,
1: or something <laughs> yeah. to that effect. You know, she'll just, be furious. Just, just like that Oscar. Yeah. Uh, so you know. That's it. Anyway, anyway, I, I, I I'd like to say the you know the passing of an era, but in reality, uh, you know, most of that era had already passed. I think well, that, that, era,
0: uh, that era passed twenty years ago. She yeah. was. Basically, when Katherine Hepburn died, that was sort of the end of that era. She was technically the last of the
1: the, the star stars, but yeah, Betty Olivia- Davis among them, yeah. uh, Joan Crawford among them, yeah, you know, yeah,
0: they all kind of held on, and the directors too, you know, uh, Cooker and Capra, they all kind of held on into the eighties, but not not long past. Mm. And Olivia De Havilland was the exception; she just stuck around. She just stuck around. I mean, if there's a you know, people have been talking about their favorite Olivia De Havilland films, uh, and Little Foxes always shows up there. I'm gonna say Snake Pit. Oh, yeah, very, very good, sir. You know, I just because I like movies about insane asylums. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, she's really, really good in it. You know, she could have hammed it up and just played crazy, crazy, but she doesn't. She's really, <laughs> very... uh, we,
1: al- uh, we also lost um, Alan Parker. Oh you man! We, now we had we had an interesting conversation about Alan.
0: We were having a really interesting conversation online, especially with Ray. But but let's weigh in because Mississippi Burning is the film that always always comes up because that was his last best chance at winning an Oscar. And when, you know, everybody kind of felt like here it is, a civil rights era movie, you know, it's it's got its conscience and it wears it on its sleeve and it's stylish. And then and then people came out and said, well, Well,
1: me being one of them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
0: You uh, you got a couple of you got uh, Hoover's FBI. as the heroes in this film. That's not quite how things unspooled. And next thing you know, it all everybody turned around. They ran the other direction and Rain Man won Best Picture.
1: Yeah, yeah. Huh? Look, I, I, for one thing, I love Rain Man. We were talking about that a little bit too. Tom Cruise's performance in Rain Man uh, has been one of the, has been, to my mind, one of the greatest performances uh, on screen of 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 my era as a as a as a film critic. I think he's awesome. extraordinary. It's funny because people always talked about Dustin Hoffman's performance, but of course, Dustin was doing that cheaty thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, I can play Rain Man. so so if i can play it it ain't acting uh but i couldn't do what tom cruise did in that movie but but nevertheless um uh, mississippi burning of course and 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 of course you know there is an issue and even and even uh what are we talking about now this is 1990 what uh, that we're talking about oh boy that was not uh 1990 90 this is 1990 we're talking talking about So Uh, we're talking about 88 88 so so, so so more than 30 years ago um, um, uh, it, it, but, you know, and Alan Parker, of course, not being specifically from not being from America and filtering that civil rights movement uh, and ultimately black folks, generally speaking, looked at that movie and what, what we, I remember calling it a, a great filmmaking, but wrong filmmaking yeah. uh, that, uh, that Alan made the wrong, not a bad movie. He made the wrong movie. Uh, because if we're talking about the civil rights era, and and Rob Reiner would do it would do it too. Um, uh, a, a few years later, uh, uh, what was the one? You know the one that Rob made with? Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The uh the 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 yeah yeah. With with, with Alec Baldwin and go yeah. about the killing of Megger Evers, where you take this thing this this that, that happened in the black community during the civil rights era, and you make a movie about the angst of some white dudes. Uh, yeah. As they deal <laughs> with, yeah, yeah. your Meg is did, but we but we made a movie about Alec Baldwin and how and and how he feels. Uh And then we have Jay Ecker Hoover's FBI agents with Willem Dafoe, Gene uh, Hackman, Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman, Willem yeah. Dafoe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, roaming around the South diligently trying to solve the <laughs> these murders, which. Did not happen and so, but good filmmaking, yes, wrong filmmaking is what I call that one. The commitments, of course, is my favorite Alan Parker movie. God dang it that's a good movie.
0: It's a great movie I mean birdie birdie uh, for me it's probably between birdie and Midnight Express uh, Midnight Express was a revelation to me uh, and I was of
1: Danny, one of Danny Trejo's first
0: movies Midnight oh express. my gosh Midnight express was was a revelation that was 1978 and uh, you know Oliver Stones screenplay. Yeah. But a, a, that was one of those moments where, uh, a, there was, it puts distance between, Alan Parker put distance between what he was doing with film and what was, ha- what had been happening, you know, just five, ten years earlier. And I, I, it was, it was a revelation, the way that he edited that film, the music, the Giorgio Moroder music, it was just, it was a devastatingly different kind of film. And, uh, I, I, it, 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 you know, it changed me. I, I kind of position Alan Parker, between Spielberg and Kubrick, and then this was the comment I made to Ray, which is to me, Alan Parker is Spielberg with grit or Kubrick with heart. Mm. Kind of sits between the two. There's an austerity. There's a there's a toughness. There's a grit, but there's still heart. And you know, Spielberg is schmaltzy, and Kubrick is cold as ice. And yeah,
1: and no empathy uh, uh, they're, they're over the there.
0: Alan Parker, and and you know, I just I, I loved Evita. Um Oh, know, Angel Heart. Oh my gosh, hard. Which another one that that got unfairly maligned. Uh, oh yeah, it's because of the whole little thing with uh, yeah, the Mickey Rourke and and, and the scene and uh, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and and you know Mickey Rourke and Robert De Niro have been getting into it again. Did you you've been following that? No, I have not. Bring me up to date. No. Rourke and Robert De Niro hate each other's guts. They, they are so antagonistic. It is unbelievable. Uh, and Mickey Rourke, it all goes back to that movie where Robert De Niro didn't want to actually talk to Mickey Rourke. He would, like, do scenes with him and then leave. He just dissed him enormously. And Mickey Rourke has never forgiven him for that, for being just kind of a pop star. So recently, Mickey Rourke went on a Twitter tirade. I don't know if it was under the influence of anything or not, but he went on a Twitter tirade. He was laying into Robert De Niro like nobody's business. Oh, it was merciless. Just unrelenting. Like, I'll, I'll meet you out on the street, you SOB. Come on, bring it. It was that kind of stuff. It was calling him out. It was, it was crazy. Uh,
1: so Angel Heart was real, man. Oh, wow. <laughs> And, and you well, know, so, I don't I I I don't know I don't know whether Robert was just, you know, method acting uh, as he used to do back in the day. You know, he used to do that crap back in the day. Method you know, he'd, 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 he'd stay in that character forever. Uh and Mickey you was just affronted by that, you know, wanted to pal around with Robert De Niro and Sure. Yeah, you know. But Robert De Niro was the senior, you know, sort of, you know, relatively speaking. In nineteen, you know, eighty six or whenever they would have been making that movie, Robert De Niro was the senior actor. He was the senior yeah. figure. Uh in there, so you know, plus he was playing the devil, dude. I mean, come on, yeah. it has to be said. <laughs> well, <laughs> who, else, and who, else, who else did we, we um, we lost uh, Wilford Brimley. oh, Wilford, oh. he was only
0: 85. Now, and, and when you find that out, everybody starts doing their math, going, Wait a minute, he was how, how the hell old was he in cocoon? He, he's in his 50s, he looked like he's been like he's
1: been 85 for the last 40 years. Yeah, he was one uh, of those guys to that had that face, he looked like a in the natural. Yeah, it was that in the natural and, and Wilford to me, my favorite Wilford Brimley role is, is, it, cause he comes in at the end of Absence of Malice. Yeah. Uh, and he, he just just rolls into that movie and he just eats the entire movie playing that old lawyer who's just yeah. going to sort all of this crap the hell out. You got Paul Newman in that scene. You got Sally Field in that scene. And Wilfred just rolls in with that with that country drawl of his and eats that scene alive. He He, he, he just takes the whole movie away from everybody in that scene.
0: You know, it's funny. Um, my wife knows a number of people that worked on him, worked with him on movies, and uh, another friend of mine uh, was uh, was with the distribution company of, a, of one of the last little indies that he made about oh, 15, 16 years ago. And um, and 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 everyone said uh, that Wilford Brimley was every bit the cantankerous curmudgeon in real life that he was with his characters. That's who he was on set, and everybody kind of kept their distance, and you were afraid of him. <laughs> you yes, we were afraid of him because you didn't know if he was just going to pop off at you. You know, uh, this, this line, this, who wrote this line? <laughs> why, why are you putting the camera there? I'm not going to do that.
1: You, you find another, some, find somebody else to do that. I'm not going to do yeah. uh, that. He was just you're, that You're that in guy. the right. You're in the right. You're in the right. The thing, he played the doctor in The Thing. People forget yeah. about that. Uh, 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 so yeah, you know Wilfred Brimley, and what was it he used to sell? He used to sell. Uh, 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 he used to sell That's, That's what it was. Yeah,
0: and and there there are some, there are some really really funny. If you go on YouTube, there are some really 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 funny mashups where people have done that thing where they cut together pieces of his commercials to to some song. Like somebody took all these pieces of Wilfred Brimley and they may, and they did it to Ice Ice Baby. So it's Wilfred Brimley <laughs> basically doing ice ice baby, except instead of saying ice ice baby, he says diabetes. <laughs> diabetes. It's, I, I, it's, it's beyond hysterical.
1: It is oh. no, it's so no off the chart funny. Mm. Uh, so, uh, and then it's we, funny lo- though, cause we lost. because we lost, uh, t- you know, talk about people from that group, because yeah. we lost Dennehy, uh Brian Dennehy who right. oh, two, three weeks ago. Uh, yeah. I guess we lost Richard Farnsworth, and you know, four, or five years ago. Well, well it actually, might have been longer. It was right after the straight story. Yeah. Um, uh, all those, so you know, again, uh, these cats in that range there, you know, seventy-five yeah. to ninety, ninety-five. That's a group. Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, they're, they're, we started to lose the British ones a while ago. You know, uh, well, they, they drank they, a lot. Yeah, Alan Bates and all <laughs> those kids. <guys>. They cheated, <laughs> they, they, they never, cheated never. themselves. Yeah, <laughs> they cheated themselves out of the last fifteen years. Yeah.
0: They uh, left. Boil. They left the last third of their careers in uh, on the counter in a pub somewhere in, uh, in <laughs> Bristol. Um, anyway, and then we also lost an executive. Tom Pollock died oh, on I... Saturday. Uh, former uh, head of Universal Studios, really an a legendary executive and producer and attorney. Um, you know, Tom Pollock uh, is the guy who actually got George Lucas his Star Wars merchandising deal. Everyone wow. forgets that. We think of him as a producer and a studio executive, but as an attorney, he's the guy that wrote the contract that made George Lucas a billionaire off yeah. of toy.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, had the foresight. Really, Tom Pollock, a, a giant uh, who who sadly, I think, retired from the business way too early. We could have really used him in the last 10, 15 years. Um, that kind of savvy pushing back on a lot of the, these really uh, ill-advised corporate moves and whatnot. But anyway... There it is. So, uh we're going to get into to a few movies to recommend. Uh there is not a lot of new stuff. We're going to mention one new movie and then uh and then I'm going to uh roll through a, a bunch of uh, classic stuff that we've got here, uh notably from Arrow and more from Kino. Kino is just giving us all kinds of great stuff. One of the Kino films has my mother-in-law in it. <laughs> rather, um, rather prominently, I might add, uh, so uh, I'm going to give that a plug, too. But first off, we're going to talk about Body Cam, which uh, is a, a strange, curiously timely, such an odd movie, uh, really well made, directed by uh, Malik Vital. And uh written by uh Richmond Riddell and Nicholas McCarthy. This is a Paramount release, this is one of the last new films that Paramount actually got out. It didn't get into theaters, obviously. Uh I covered this on film week. And you know, um you think Mary J. Blige, Mary J. Blige, you got an Oscar nomination. Why are you showing up in some generic cop movie? It's so it's so odd. It's so odd. And and it turns out this is a supernatural movie. It's a, it's a supernatural horror film masquerading as a cop film or vice versa. But, um, it, it, it completely goes off the rails in kind of a good way when, you know, she and her partner go out on a call and then suddenly some horrifying supernatural force murders her partner. And now we get into a story which is sort of like a supernatural variation on the George Floyd death mm-hmm. in a very strange timely way. We this movie was made, keep in mind, probably end of last year this just happens to be purely timely. And it, and it was released, uh, before all of that stuff to, um, to streaming. So it's, I I don't want to give you any details on it, but Mary J Blige is very good in it. The movie is, you know, it's genre, it's genre. It is what it is. Um, it's not, it's not going to, you know, be memorable, uh, six months from now, but Mary J Blige is terrific in it. And, uh, it does kind of plug into the zeitgeist in a, in a very, very curious way. So that said, uh, also some really, really good performances from the supporting cast in here, it, including, uh, Anikanoni Rose, who is almost unrecognizable. Mm. Matt Wolf and uh david zayas so uh check it out i'm curious to see what malik vital does going forward uh got a lot of style a lot of skill we'll see if he stays in the genre realm or tries to do something a little bit uh a little bit more expansive um okay i'm gonna hit these uh oh let's talk about the criterion right now tim we got a criterion here bruce lee his greatest hits people (laughs) how people have been waiting for this for the longest time Here's what you get. Criterion finally gave us a Bruce Lee bo- a Bruce Lee box set with 4K digital restorations. All this is Blu-ray, but they come from 4K digital restorations of The Way of the Dragon, ah. Game of Fist of Fury, and The Big Boss. Basically, the first four biggies. Everything that precedes and and kind of lives in the in the immediate vicinity of End of the Dragon, without End of the Dragon. There are so many extras on here: interviews, original footage of, of, of Bruce Lee. Um, there's uh, there's even uh, the 1981 film Game of Death 2 included, oh, yeah. as a, which is terrible. Um, but it, it, what's so interesting on this, especially, is the uh, the 1973 Bruce Lee: The Man and the Legend, and Bruce Lee in His Own Words documentaries from 1998, which. Um, which, uh, here's what the advantage of this. It's not just the films. You get a complete portrait of who Bruce Lee was, what his philosophy was of life, of fighting, of martial arts, all that stuff. And you, you realize that, that Bruce Lee, and we've talked about this before, Bruce Lee was the first major crossover artist, period. In, in 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 music movies entertainment anything mm. he was the sky this is the this is he was the first artist who transcended a uh, nation of origin race mm. language mm-hmm. he was popular in Asia he was popular in the Middle East he was popular in Europe he was popular in the United States white audiences flocked to see his movies Asian audiences flocked black audiences made him a god mm-hmm. his, audiences flock to see him he, he broke down barriers that nobody else has really been able to break down since what makes Bruce Lee so special?
1: well you know at, at the center of it there there's this nexus where you have to, the martial arts obviously but Bruce Lee was the epitome of cool uh, Bruce Lee was cool in the same way that uh, Richard Roundtree was tr- cool uh, in the same yeah. way that Ron O'Neill was cool uh, plus martial arts uh, he was he was a, he was he was a man's man, Bruce Lee. You know, which, which you know, we're talking about the late '60s, early '70s, all all of that, uh, Bruce Lee. Um, while at the same time, he was a ladies' man, uh, Bruce mm. Lee. Uh, yeah. So 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 really, you looked at Bruce Lee, and you just had it all. It was just all right there. There's a direct line between Bruce Lee and and Rudy Ray Moore's dolomite. Kind uh, of a, a, a direct there. line between Bruce Lee and and, uh, and uh, Jim. Uh, uh, um, Jim Kelly. Uh, yep. uh, the Direct lines are right there between these guys. Sometimes, literally direct. <laughs> they're like they're like they're together. So that's what you get when you got when you have Bruce Lee. And then there was that philosophy, particularly that particularly appealed to you know young folks of our age. Start talking about the yeah. late to early seventies. You know when we're when we're thirteen, fourteen. I'm thirteen, 14 anyway. You're a little bit younger. And uh, and and these guys and these and this this philosophy uh, that came uh, uh, from Bruce, sort of dis- distilled for us. Uh, was something that we could understand and deal with, dude. I was a fake kung fu expert <laughs> when I was when I was twelve years old, and then I actually took some martial arts lessons. And, and uh,
0: <laughs> I I I got into martial arts uh, early on because Bruce Lee. I made my own nunchucks. <laughs> my mother thinking I was out of my mind. I went and took a couple of old um, broomsticks, you know, like 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 just sawed them right off. And then I I dr- drilled holes in the ends of them, and then I got these eye screws, and I'm pouring liquid concrete in there, and I'm putting the eye screws in, and then I'm bolt <laughs> the cutters, and I'm cutting up some chain, and I'm bending the chain. And I here I am in the garage putting this thing together. And my mother's like, what on what are you doing? What is this? And then I start whipping those things around. She's like, okay, not in the house. <laughs> I myself in the head with them, and almost knocked myself out. So that's oh. that's what Bruce Lee did to me. Love it. It love, was a it, love it. Love it. Go All right. I'm going to hit some uh, some of these Arrow titles here real quickly. We've got uh, four titles from uh, Arrow Academy, which is their Criterion-y line, the more legit kind of stuff, not the exploitation stuff. And uh, The Mad Fox is really, really interesting. This is a Japanese film by Tomu Uchida. And I had I, I am not familiar with Tomu Uchida and I thought I knew all the great Japanese directors, and uh this is the first time this has ever been released outside of Japan. And it's really, really interesting. And I'm not sure why uh Uchida didn't become more famous uh outside of Japan. I it doesn't make sense to me at all. But um this is really a very, very interesting film. Um that's uh, almost poetically mythical it takes place in medieval Japan. And it's all about a, uh, a prophecy by a, uh, one of the shogun's astrologers. And it's, it's a devastating prophecy. It's, it's a, it's a forecast, uh, uh that, that, that threatens the realm uh, as it were. And, um, it's about what that does to people. And, it, and it's really interesting because you look at it in a historical context with, you know, uh anyone who might proclaim to be a foresee a seer or a prophet or whatever it might be, uh, their forecasts, do they become self-fulfilling or do they do they uh kind of create their own weather in many respects? It's a really, mm-hmm. really interesting psychological um film and it takes some fascinating twists. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It has a great commentary by Japanese cinema scholar Jasper Sharp. Uh, and uh, I really, really recommend this. This is really fascinating. It comes from the Toei Library, and it's a beautiful, beautiful transfer.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful film too. I mean, the, that period in Japan, but this is that's it, it, actually gorgeous. I've been watching the trailer; here, it's just absolutely stark, starkly it's, it's, beautiful. It's I don't know why
0: I've never heard of the film or Ochita before, but it's a wonderful get. And Bravo to Arrow Academy for doing it. Mm. Uh, We also have America as Seen by a Frenchman, which is a film by Francois Reichenbach with a great score by Michel Legrand. And uh, this is this is a a, this comes at the end of the 1950s when French documentaries were, you know, really kind of just a cool thing. And um, uh, Francois Reichenbach adds to that. By, uh, you know, I mean, he's a very famous guy in France, not necessarily known here. So he basically came to the United States and he just uh, traveled around for a year and a half. And uh, this is the most unusual film that you could imagine, because it really is America as seen by a Frenchman who looks at us and just thinks, boy, you you know, you're, you're nice people, but you're a little odd, aren't you?
1: Yeah, and America is seen by a Frenchman in, you know, 1959, 1960. Yeah. So the America of 1959, 1960. So we have to think about that for a second. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. You, know, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, uh, so yeah, so it's very interesting indeed. Yep, it's a good film.
0: Uh, not a lot by way of extras on it, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, a little presentation by author Philip Kemp and some, some, uh, some stills, but it is still really, really worth checking out. Um, also, Hiroshima, a film by Hideo Sekigawa, which I am familiar with, loosely familiar with. This was made in 1953, and, um, uh, obviously it is a, uh, it is a, um, it, it it's it is a it is a it's based on uh the the on eyewitness accounts of uh, of Hiroshima the dropping of the bomb mm. um, and uh many child survivors are involved in this and it's 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 loosely associated with with the book or and a couple other uh, works that were written shortly thereafter so um you know it this was an academic production it was produced by the Japanese Teachers Union and uh the um so you, what you have basically is almost I don't want to call it a crowdsourced film it's not it is it is a it is a legitimate document but um it really is. It it, it brings it close uh, in in many respects in ways that the news and the newsreels don't. So really, quite a vital film uh, has has a, a seventy three minute documentary extra on it called um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki Download from two thousand eleven, which is a is a wonderful. Also has interviews with survivors on it, and um, definitely check it out. It's it's really good. Uh, it's a wonderful historical document. Mm. And then the last one here is uh Life is a Long, Quiet River, one of the most beautiful French films of the last, good grief, I I, I mean, 40 years, maybe. Um, really an absolutely terrific film. Uh, it's a just wicked, dark comedy by Etienne Châtelier, who, who never made a, a better film. This is easily the best thing he ever did. And uh, it's kind of a a, cla- a comedy of manners, a comedy of class manners, Um but it's dark, and it all centers around a, a baby-switched-at-birth accident, which is. It winds up being just the most – this is just one of those bitter French comedies, one of those dark, bitter French comedies. Like in Bunuel or Funnier, this might have been the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. We're we're more of a biting satire, so that's that's kind of what this is. But it is a really good film. It's won a lot of great awards, and uh, it's worth checking out. Life is a Long, Quiet River, really, really a great film. On the uh, exploitation end of things, we have a great box set here, as long as we're on uh, Japanese films. Uh, Solid Metal Nightmares, the films of Shinya Tsukamoto. And, uh, Shinya Tsukamoto is, uh, one of the very, very best all time, um uh, genre filmmakers in Japan, mainly because of the films Tetsuo the Iron Man and uh, Tetsuo Two Body Hammer. If you've seen those, you know, oh wow, this guy has just a dark, psychotic, cyberpunk vision. He also made a uh, Bullet Ballet about 22 years ago, which is uh, just—it it is exactly that. It's a Bullet Ballet. It is operatic. It is violent. Um, it's just absolutely insane and uh all of that is included here along with stuff like Kotoku Vital uh the adventure of Denchu Kozu haze i mean it's really really just a a sensational box set it really really is and um you want you want you, you, a snake of June is on here. You want to check this out. The uh, solid metal nightmares, the films of Shinya Tsukamoto, but mainly what you're seeing this for are the uh, the four great films: Tetsuo and Tetsuo Two, Tokyo Fist, and Bullet Ballet. Those are the four that make this set an absolute must own. Um, Zombie for sale is a little bit insane. This is a <laughs> It is. I mean, like, I don't know what it is with Koreans and zombies, but uh, you know, we've we've had like uh, uh, trained Busan. The sequel's coming out soon too, by the way. Yeah, the trained Busan sequel coming out. Um, so, I, look, it is a. Uh, it, this is basically the story of a vegetarian zombie from Korea. I don't I'm not gonna tell you anything else about it. It's it's from Mars. It is totally weird. Uh but there it is, you know, it's got it's all kinds of social commentary. Most Korean films tend to be really, really allegorical that way, and there it is.
1: Uh jaw and all that, yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's all, all allegorical. Um Black Rainbows, Mike Hodges film with Rosanna Arquette, Jason Robards, and Tom Hulse that uh dates to, I think, the late 80s, right? Didn't he do this in the late 80s? 89, yeah, '88, 80, 89, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Mike Hodges, of course, uh, really never made a better film than uh, Flash Gordon. I know some people say Get Carter, but I'm a Flash Gordon fan. Uh, but none, nonetheless, he took a he took a turn here into a supernatural thriller, and um, it, it's okay. Uh, you know, generally speaking, it, it it has its chills and it's got its moments. And Roseanne Arquette is fine, and Jason Robards kind of phones it in, and Tom Halls was you know still trying to figure out what he wanted to do after Amadeus. Yeah. Uh, we also have Bloodstone, which is a Nico Mastarakis production directed by Dwight Little. Nico Mastarakis made all kinds of crap, and uh, this is another one of them, you know, just mostly exploitation stuff. This yeah. is um, – the only thing that is noteworthy about this is this is the first and, to my mind, the only English-language role for superstar Rajni, the, uh, the, the Indian star of uh, many great insane Tamil movies that friends of yeah. mine all- – see on their opening day uh otherwise known as rajini Kant, but he is superstar rajini to the tens and hundreds of millions of people that worship him and he's in this and he's not he's not yet bald and old and fat so you know <laughs> like, this is like late 80s yeah yeah you can enjoy it bloodstone but it's it's not a very good movie it's just it's it's, it's more sort of knock off indiana jones stuff yeah um and then the last two here uh, dream demon director's cut Uh, not really a fan of this, but I know some people are. Uh, this is from 1988. Kind of a, kind of a, you know, mid-level supernatural thriller at the time. Uh, has tons and tons of extras and interviews with people uh, from the cast and the filmmakers and, you know, the producers. It's, it's all loaded up with stuff. Has a cult following. I, I don't... I don't know. It's not really my, one of my favorite things, but it's it's you know
1: it's, 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 young Timothy Spall is in that
0: movie. Dude. <laughs> it's, it's a British it's a British genre film, so I guess that makes it more respectable. <laughs> Gothic too. Timothy Spall hammers his hand on a nail in Gothic. It's uh, you know he's made some weird stuff. Uh, and then the last one, back to our Japanese exploitation, is Inferno of Torture. You gotta love those Japanese titles. Uh, Teruo Ishii made Inferno of Torture and uh this also is from the this is what is this late
1: sixties i think it was like it 68, 69, yeah yeah
0: uh anyway he he made a lot of really really twisted kind of s and m e horrors sexualized things yeah, yeah. and this is another one of them uh it, it's exactly right along the lines of everything that he's done it's it's you know uh nude women and tattoos and torture mm-hmm.
1: and sex. Yeah. And, and that's Tattoo all you need. geisha girls and little yeah. Yeah, the outfits. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he did. That's his, that's that's a, his style. <laughs> that's yeah. So
0: anyway, he. Uh, if, if you like that deal, if you know who Teruo Ishii was, then you'll probably love the film. If you don't, honestly, I highly advise you not get into it. And then uh, before we get into a little bit of television, I'm going to just mention some Kino titles here. We got three great Kino box sets. Carol Lombard collection number one. The Audie Murphy Collection and the Tony Curtis collection uh these will keep you going as long as lockdown and quarantine are still uh putting the crimp in your in your in your style. No man of her own, man of the world and fast and loose are the three films from the Carol Lombard collection Carol Lombard, one of the great beauties of all time, one mm. of the great ladies oftentimes took uh, too much perhaps of a of a a a, a second uh, kind of t- pulled up the rear with a lot of her leading men. She was, you know, with Clark Gable, and she was with William Powell, and uh, you know, she let her leading men oftentimes lead the way. But by the end of the movie, you usually wind- you only wind up remembering Carol Lombard. Yeah. Uh, she was just luminous and extraordinary. And these uh, are- uh,
1: a couple of few of those movies. If I'm not mistaken, are pre code. They're all three pre-code. They're all they're all pre-code, and, and you, you want to see Carol Lombard and some of the costumes she wore in those pre-code movies. Basically, she wore a lot of slips, <laughs> and, 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 and they were just they were just so sexy. beautiful blonde, of course, with with the hair, and they were just like I said, pre-code, uh, and, uh, and very often she would get wet. So Carol there Lombard, yeah, <laughs> it was great.
0: Uh, Audie Murphy, of course, was a World War II uh, legend. He was a he was a, a war hero who won the uh, Medal of Honor, and then uh, parlayed that into a movie in which he played himself, and parlayed that into being a Western actor. Yeah, and kind of because uh, Audie Murphy never could act. But okay, he, he can't act worth a lick. But you know what? If you're a fan, you'll enjoy the movies. Yeah. Nope. No Name on the Bullet, Ride a Crooked Trail, and The Duel at Silver Creek. They are all strictly B-movies starring a guy who had no business being in movies other than the fact that he was a war hero. So there's kind of a there's kind of a, a fascinating nostalgia about that. Uh, Tony Curtis, man, I'll tell you. I've been watching a lot of Tony Curtis movies again lately. Yeah. That, that, never got enough credit for being a great actor.
1: Oh, wonderful actor. He's in funny, uh, Tony. He could do it all. The Range. Long. The Range, yeah.
0: Was amazing. He could do it all. He just didn't get enough credit. These are three films that are kind of minor Tony Curtis films, but you know, I, I'll tell you, he's great in all of them. The Perfect Furlough, The Great Imposter, and 40 Pounds of Trouble. Uh, they are a lot of fun. Eh, all three of them. And uh, 40 Pounds of Trouble which is one of those kind of wacky screwball comedy, uh, family comedies where, you know, it's the, gir- the little girl is the, is the 40 pounds of trouble and the little girl is really the thing you're looking at. But I'll tell you, Tony Curtis and Suzanne Plachette, that's a great pair. That's a great pair. That's a great pair. That's Tony
1: was it. one of those actors uh, for when he was very young. He was ridiculously beautiful, of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, him, Cary Grant. But for him, it actually kind of got in the way. Uh, of his career a little bit, despite the fact that he was, that he was doing good work, he was the pretty boy. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and then you know a little bit later, when the, you know uh, uh, when when that sort of went away, we, we we started to pay a little bit more attention. Now he also he also always had that uh, that that uh, I, I want to say accent. What was that? What, what was Tony? Was Tony was that Brooklyn? Was that the Bronx? Was,
0: you know, it was kind of it was it, it was sort of all of the above. It was sort yeah. of all of the above.
1: Yeah, was, you know, tough guy. And I just that Bronx. is just, born in uh, 1925 in the Bronx, New York, and that was always there in his voice. So if you're watching Spartacus uh, and you hear Tony Curtis speaking uh, with that ever so slightly Bronxian thing, that could be uh, distracting. But when it was correct for 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 a film, it was a wonderful thing. And when he would get rid of it all together, as he did in that Sidney Poitier movie, where there you know, where they're, you know the one uh, running around, and he has that Southern accent. Uh, then that's when you knew Tony, Tony Curtis could actually act, and he was really, oh, he so really good. Really good. Lo- love Tony Curtis. So well,
0: let's, let's do some TV. Uh, let's bounce into, into a little bit of TV, and then we'll come back to the other TVs later.
1: All right, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna bounce around a little bit. I'm gonna start with the incredibly obvious because I did not realize that South Park, uh, has it is it's in its 24th season. We have here the 23rd season of South Park. And, man, I can remember That's when... Amazing. That's amazing. It's, it's just astounding. It's going, to, it's going to end up being like the Flintstones or something. Uh, 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 but, you know, I can, I can remember, when, you know, the, 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 that, that, that VHS videotape was floating around. Uh, the one set doing Christmas. With, uh, the, it was just, and, you know, people would have 15th generation copies of that VHS. that they. This is like 1996, yep. 97 uh, when that was passing around. And here we are uh, 23, 24 uh, seasons later. Um, uh, so anyway, is there anything that these guys can actually put on, on? And to be honest with you guys, I quit. I quit watching South, South Park ten years ago. <laughs> I don't actually watch South Park anymore. Um, is there anything that these guys can put on that uh, that uh, that season twenty three that people haven't already experienced? Or is it a, not, uh, not really?
0: I, I still recommend the the audio commentaries from the first uh, the, the censored audio commentaries they did when they first released it to to, to DVD. Yeah, that's that's the funny stuff. That's the yeah. really stuff but there's just nothing left to say anymore the shows the shows push every button imaginable what are you going to do on a commentary
1: yeah yeah and you know it's interesting because you know the 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 south park movie uh and then of course they did that sort of team america thing that they did with the uh you know with the puppets or whatever they were uh but really not a lot in by way of production and feature film territory um uh, you know out of trey and matt uh i just thought there would have been more more like a seth more like a seth what's his name kind of kind of thing that's interesting
0: Yeah, Seth MacFarlane. Yeah, yeah, I I expect them to do more, but I guess they they just put it all on. I mean, there you know there are uh, it's there are commentaries in all the episodes, but they're not it's it you know it's it's a little dry at this point. But I'll tell you, man, they they, they keep it going. And I think it was Mark. You know, Mark knows uh, one of the one of the producers or one of the former producers, and they they crank those things out. I mean, if you get if if something happens on Monday, they will have a full South Park episode by the following Tuesday.
1: Yeah. Yes, great. Uh, particularly if you consider how the technology has changed since 1997, 96, 97, uh, what we do. I mean, that, that, the, the, a lot of that was, I mean, it was like literally hand-drawn uh, back then. And then to the extent that there was any computer technology applied to it at all, um, uh, it, it, nothing like, like what we do today. What we do today, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's fairly simple animation. Uh, but that animation added to today's technology, I'm not surprised if they can care. This is mostly about the voices, isn't it? You know, yeah, it's mostly about it the voices. Um, there's a whole lot of NCIS business here. So you got NCIS Season 17. You got NCIS New Orleans Season 6, NCIS Los Angeles uh, Season 11. Dude, the damn NCISs. Who would have thunk? Uh, I,
0: <laughs> I, I uh, am pulling
1: there here. There they are. Yeah, uh, you know.
0: See, NCIS is uh, it, this. This is this is kind of what we get from CSI, right? CSI started this, yeah. And then Dick Wolf said, "Hey, I could do that." And then he gave us Law and Order, like twenty of them. And yeah. then we have the Chicago shows. But NCIS really has done a very, very good job of keeping it going as well. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's kind of astonishing. I, and I guess I guess the lesson is that audiences like the universe. Of a lot of these shows, they like what it does. They like uh, what it creates for them, and um, they get the right actors in it. Now, of the three, which do you think actually works? Do you think all three of them work? Do none of them work? There's only one, two. What's the what's? The, how do you rank them?
1: Well, you know, the original NCIS uh, was the one that I that I paid the most attention to. I don't know that I ever bought NCIS New Orleans with Scott Bakula and all these all these folks walking around doing these fake Southern yeah. accents, you know. Except for Lucas uh, uh, Lucas, what's his name, who was actually from downtown, yeah. so so he sounded real. And, and but you know, everybody else had to sort of like engage and being from New Orleans, and that always sort of distracted yeah. me. Uh, our buddy Sherman uh, did. A, I think Sherman's done all, all of them, but he he definitely he did an NCIS Los Angeles, not too terribly long ago, uh, but he didn't have to do the accent because his character was from L.A., and then of course he did an NCIS Los Angeles. That's the one with LL Cool J. And uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it has been around forever. I think that, that one lives in a world that I buy the most. I buy I that world the most.
0: I, I think, I think uh, the one... I mean, look, I like Mark Harmon. I've always liked Mark Harmon, yeah. but I never really got into NCIS. It was sort of like, okay, I'll, I might watch an episode or two because I like Mark Harmon, but it never really hooked me. But I agree. I think where it really, really comes together is is somebody had the very smart uh, idea. Let's put uh, Chris O'Donnell and LL Cool J together as a team. Yeah. Let's make that a, a TV buddy cop thing. And it works. Oh, yeah. It really works. And uh, I, you know, I was never a Chris O'Donnell fan before. I was always an LL Cool J fan, but always felt like they never found something for him to do. Like, he showed up in toys, the Barry Levinson toys. Oh, he was yeah, terrible. way,
1: way back in 1990. Yeah, that was his first was sort of terrible thing. It yeah.
0: just wasn't good. You're like, oh, okay, you know, you're really, that's just not working. And somehow, they, this is it. This is it. You know, they both have a groove. They have a great chemistry. The writing is solid. I think NCIS to uh, Los Angeles is the one where the idea really, really comes together. Well, it's,
1: what's ironic is what they got going there. It's that original lethal weapon thing. It is. Uh, they're, they're like the young, uh, and, and it's funny because they're playing they're playing characters because uh, you know LL is like this uh, you know a fatherly character yep. in that show. You know, the, you know LL the gangster rapper yep. kind of guy. He's like the dad figure. Where Chris, who if I'm not mistaken, has something like 15 kids. I'm talking about the actual Crystal Dottle, right? He, yes, he's just, he's like 15 kids. He's, just, he's <laughs> he just, he he, a lot he, of kids. And he's playing, and he's playing, and he's playing the Lucy Goosey song Mel Gibson yep. guy in his movie. I'm like, that's the way you do it. You play the guy that's opposite, yeah. uh, uh relatively speaking of who you, who you have to walk around being in your real life, yep. and then you, and then you have yourself some fun doing it. So that's all of them. Uh, a lot of stuff. So NCIS seventeen, season seventeen. NCIS Los Angeles season eleven. New Orleans season six. Is what we and got here, right?
0: next to no extras, just featurettes here and there, you know, nothing really spectacular. But I'll tell you, it's quite a universe they created. Kudos to them. They did well. My mother uh, that stuff, yeah. What about Hawaii 5 the final season? It's done, Tim. They finished it.
1: Dude, ten, year, ten years, ten seasons, twenty ten is when the show kicked off, and I and I I, I I I don't know whether I was a guest on the podcast or what back then, but I I remember specifically saying, "What the hell would you do this for? <laughs> <laughs> what what the, why are you messing with my why? Because they, they they started messing with a Y five O, and they started messing with Magnum Pi, and they yeah. and they just and, and dude, I was livid, I was just livid about all of it. But you know what? This is why I'm not a television executive, because yeah. every one of those shows has been on for multiple seasons now, and people seem to love them. Um, I don't think that they're loved by people from our generation. You know, yo, know, you and I grew up, you know, Hawaii 5 you know, yeah. Jack Lloyd. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry, if, if, unless you bring in Jack Lord back from the dead. I think he's dead. Is he dead? I hope he's dead. Yeah, he did I kill him? Okay, good. He's dead. <laughs> I, I, he's dead. I, I didn't kill him. And, um, but unless you bring in Jack back, then, you know, then, no, <laughs> I'm not yeah. watching ay five O, and so I never did. So, you know, that's what I could say about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Well, you know,
0: as long as we're talking about old shows, I'm going to, I'm just going to lay it right out here. I'm a Wonder Woman fan. Oh hell yeah, dude! Linda Carter. That's I uh, all due respect to, to you know Gal Gadot, uh, who is a terrific Wonder Woman. But Linda Carter will forever be Wonder Woman to me.
1: Yeah, and uh, and and you know what?
0: Deborah Winger will forever be Wonder Woman's little sister.
1: Yeah, <laughs> because there she was. And, and let me tell you something too, because you know people poke. At folks about this, there was that wonderful movie about the guy with, the, with with his wife and his girlfriend, the guy who created Wonder Woman. Yeah,
0: uh,
1: uh, and, and there's a movie. I think who who is it? was it? Yeah, it was it was, was, uh, it, was uh,
0: it was Luke uh, Luke Evans played Luke the guy. Evans. It was Thank a year ago. Much. I have to do that on film week. Yeah, it was, it was a weird little polyamorous relationship that he had with a student and his wife. And they wound up living together in this weird polyamorous kind of, you know, uh, very shocking relationship for decades, like 20 some odd years. And, uh, that, that's sort of what the emphasis was. But the thing about the Luke Evans film, and I'll let, let you get back to it here in a second, is that you're watching this movie with Luke Evans and, um, well, these two just screamingly attractive actresses. And then at the end they show you the actual photographs of the real guy and the real women and you go, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: Oh, there's, there's <laughs> and pudgy and suddenly this is not yeah. so hot anymore. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's all stopped being hot. <laughs> but through the movie, it was all so hot. But, but and out of that comes this comes this character, Wonder Woman. Who for me as a kid in the seventies, now I, I get a lot of folks who look at that and I say, you got Wonder Woman. You got particularly the Linda Carter Woman, uh, Wonder Woman, you know, with the with the and the little tiny waist and the little outfit and she's spinning around and all of that. And then you're, oh, that's sexist. Let me tell you something. Wonder Woman invested me with a respect for women and their power in the mind of a 13-year-old boy, right?, uh, uh, that I, that I got from here. Wonder Woman and ISIS. Remember ISIS the other Saturday yep. morning? yeah Those women, I get it. Yeah, they were sexy and everything, but you know what they were doing? Kicking ass and taking names. That's right. what they were doing. They were saving the United States of America. And, and, and notice that the show was called Wonder Woman. Lyle Wagner played the major, major, whatever his name was. Uh, uh yeah. on the show. And, and she, and, and her guys, she was his secretary but in fact she was the one who was always saving the day. So if you're a 13-year-old boy and you're watching this woman save the world if not you know America mm-hmm. anyway every every saturday morning this is what I'm watching and yeah she's blazing hot too. I'm sorry dude that played out in my life in other ways. To me women were the folks who saved the world. That every saturday morning
0: that did not w- happen in the 1960s. This is a fundamental difference between the 60s and the 70s. If you grew up in the 60s, you grew up watching Men Save the World in westerns and in cop shows and whatever it was. You were watching. Yeah. You were watching uh, Dragnet. You were watching uh, the Wild Wild West. You were watching Bonanza. Bonanza. Yeah. 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 One
1: Adam, Adam Twelve. Report. All that
0: stuff. All that stuff. But but what happens in the 70s primarily? Yes, are three things: Wonder Woman and ISIS. And I'm going to throw a third in there. The Bionic Woman,
1: the Bionic Woman, uh, and let's not forget about Charlie's Angels. That's about nice. Charlie's Angels. There you go.
0: That's uh, as well. So all, and we grew up on all that stuff. All that stuff. Yep, it makes a difference. Well, Wonder Woman is out in a complete Blu-ray collection. Uh, all beautifully newly remastered. I've been waiting for this for years. I've been looking at all my old DVDs for the longest time, and uh, boy, they really did a great job putting the uh, putting the, the remastering them on Blu-ray. They are just sparkling and colorful. The red, white, and blue in the in those that fantastic credit sequence just all yeah. blows up on her on her uh, costume. It just blows up, and I'm not kidding you. Deborah Winger as Drusilla is a hilarious Wonder Woman's kid sister she's a little pudgy she's a little clumsy but she knows how to spin around and get the outfit on and uh, that is just an absolutely terrific kind of a cameo it launched her and uh, she would be nowhere without that it's really really terrific you get a season three episode commentary by Linda Carter here which is absolutely wonderful uh, as well as on the pilot And, uh, three really, really cool featurettes that just give you all of the, I mean, basically making the points that Tim and I just made, which is, you know, Wonder Woman as a feminist icon and, uh, and how the show came together. I mean, really, really great stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Wonder Woman, the complete collection. From uh, Warner Brothers in D.C., newly remastered on Blu-ray, I cannot highly recommend this enough. It is just great. It's unfortunate if this was supposed to coincide with the movie, the Wonder Woman 1984 that was supposed to come out, which is now delayed until the holidays, hopefully not longer. But, uh, you know, it, it's, out, it's not coinciding with the movie, but it's out there, so make, make a go of it.
1: Man, you can still catch Linda Carter running around, uh, the current day Supergirl Sing. series. Uh, well, yeah, right. yes, yes. She's, yeah, she's, yes, the, the singing thing too, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Jack Ryan, season two, man, um, uh, is here. Um, oh, I, again, you know, you and I, we, we you know, Tom Clancy, uh, Jack Ryan, uh, you know, the perennial character from that series, which for you and I, I have, I have been reading those books in the late 80s. So familiar yep. with Tom Clancy, and you know, I was uh, I was kind of into that. So uh, when they did that first film, which I guess is going to be what the Hunt for Red October, is that right? Uh, yeah. is, that, is that the first movie treatment? Alec Baldwin and all that kind of Hunt for Red October. So this is going to be late you know, eighty nine, ninety, something like that, thirty years ago. And, you, you know, and and you know, again, familiar with those books. Thoroughly loved that movie, and then we watched that series over the next thirty years continually metamorphosized itself and it gave us Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan, it gave us Ben Affleck as Jack Ryan yeah, in one of those movies Some of All Fears I think was that one yeah. and, 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 and on and on and on and, and then finally sort of made its way out of the feature film realm, those kind of movies stopped getting made really is what happened, uh, but yet uh, it, you know, it fixed itself up so that it could live inside the television world episodically I would not have I would not have put John Krasinski would not have been my first choice. No, no. You know, yeah, yeah, he works through it. He pulls it off uh, with Wendell Pierce in the series. And, you know, and, 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 and this is and this is season two. But no, um, um, I uh, yeah, just know not in my head. The guy from uh, what was it? The office. He's, he's one of those office kids. Right. If I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. That's where he began. And he's been trying to
0: shed the office persona ever since.
1: Yeah, and, you know, and look, you, 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 well, you know, directing those Quiet Place movies. and and But, you know, I still cannot say... That when I look at John Krasinski, I see this hero um, uh, who saves the world. Um, now the way he, he he's chosen to play Jack Ryan as opposed to uh, the way Harrison Ford or even Alec Baldwin for that matter played him, they always played him as literally this nerd. And, you know, it was like the point of the thing. I'm just a, I'm just an analyst. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. And they they would be pressed in, into having to you know grab the gun and do the thing. He doesn't really play in that way. Uh he plays him as a guy who understands the gun and is perfectly happy and ready to go out there and, 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 and you know knock some guys out. Yes, As you say sort of changing that persona. They put anything on that box set, man? No, not not especially.
0: It's uh it's kind of, you know, yeah, it's 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 pretty much just dry and it's the show and uh you know they got deleted scenes and that's about it.
1: No, right. About uh, it. it, it uh, the the um the good doctor um uh, season 3 um uh I, 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 again you know um I did, when this sh- series first started it started watching it, and I kind of thoroughly enjoyed it. I did, if you had asked me if it's going to hang around, you know, for three or four seasons, I'd have no. I, I said to you, how, how far can you get with this guy? Because this is, again, based, this is based on a Korean soap opera, by the way.
0: People yeah. forget that. This is actually based on a uh, an adaptation of a Korean serialized drama, like a, like a telenovela, and somehow they turned it into an ABC medical show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, which people which people seem to like. I don't know. I I don't know. I I, I was good for about a half a season on it. They put anything (laughs) on that box.
0: Nope. Deleted scenes and bloopers. That's it. Um, Orange is New Black season seven. This is still this is the final season and uh you know i I never quite got into this, but I think you're a bit more of a fan than I
1: well, you know i I did the performances and and, and what not happened good, lots of recognition from Emmys over the years from that and and that's the show that created some. Uh, you know created some new stars uh, it, it was the sort of it show that was the way it was constructed uh it had to put a diverse cast in that in that prison you know you couldn't have you couldn't have a prison full of you know jes yeah, you can 't yeah. <laughs> do that so so suddenly you you have all of these people and they get and they got a chance to show what they could do and a lot of those folks are you know they're working all over the place right now so I uh, it, 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 you know look I capped out on orange is the New black two, a couple of seasons ago, but I deeply appreciated what that show it did the same thing for women did oz if you recall oz sure of course did did you know was set in that prison yeah, probably 20 years ago now uh, was oz oh, so yeah. orange is, yeah, is the same kind of thing yeah interesting yeah.
0: ernie hudson on oz yeah. lock it down lock it down uh what else we got here we got uh, his dark materials did you watch his dark materials the uh, first on hbo
1: I did, I did, I did. It's, you know, you know, I have a have a thing for a sort of mystical, magical series that have at the center of them little girls, uh, uh, and particularly little girls uh, who are on a uh, a mission to find their dad, which is what's going on in that series. She's looking for her dad, uh, and you know, it, it, the it, the interesting thing about that series, you think we think about something like uh, you know Tolkien's uh, you know uh, series, yeah. uh, Lord of the Rings, all that, uh, or, or, or even the. Um, um, uh, some of the other stuff that came out of the 30s and 40s. This series here isn't that old, no. uh, and, the, and, and the guy who created it and wrote it was a junior high teacher, uh, you know, who's you know, and, and he just sort of created all of this stuff. So it's sort of it's sort of interesting, and I, and I kind of dug it.
0: Who was supposed to do the the big the big feature film of this? Was it was it Del Toro? Yeah. It was, it was it was Del Toro wanting to do this? I yeah. think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, Guillermo Del Toro. That's exactly yeah, right and yet. he was never able to kind of get it together. I don't know why, but it's, uh, anyway, HBO series. And I don't know why
1: Del Toro had such a hard time.
0: Maybe it was just too expensive.
1: Anyway. It works, it works best as a series on either way. I, Twelve Monkeys, dude. Yeah. Uh, now when I think about 12 Monkeys of course I think about 1995 12 Monkeys one of the to, to me one of the best time travel yep. films ever conceived based on the uh who's the little french short film what was his name Oh uh uh yeah Chris uh, Parker uh, uh, and all of that and of course there's this wonderful um uh, uh, on most of the DVDs for 12 Monkeys you'll find this documentary that goes behind the scenes of it. Yeah, uh, and it's just a really, really fascinating watch of how that movie. And, and it's one of the examples where a uh, producer, Terry Gilliam, of course, yeah. Uh, and it's one of the examples of where a producer saved saved uh, a director, a filmmaker. It really shows you. You just have to watch a documentary. the documentary that the producer of that movie saved Terry Gilliam from himself.
0: Y- you were of course talking about Chuck Roven, who has yeah. produced, produced all the Dark Knight films and for whom friends of mine used to work and who was married to Don Steele, the former head of uh, Columbia Pictures before she passed from cancer, and Chuck Roven, who, who is all over the hamster factor. That's the documentary on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you told me that before I even watched it. You said, watch it. Chuck Roven saves this movie from Terry Gilliam three times. Oh, yeah. And he does. It's really It tells you what a producer can do when he's on his game and why a producer needs to be on top of the director.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Terry Gillen was, you know, very important, powerful director at that time, but Chuck Roven was just a little bit more powerful. And, yeah. uh, and that, and when you have an inversion, sometimes, uh, that's when you have directors who do goofy shit, as Terry would go on to do uh, several yeah. times later, the Imaginarium of Dr. Puncher. Yeah. And all of that. Um, uh, now, this, of course, is the television series. <laughs> yeah. Twelve Monkeys, uh, which has you know been been around for a while now. I don't know. Again, um, um, I was yeah, look. I love that movie so much. I shied away from the series. The series more or less lives in the same space as the movie. Yeah. Uh, in terms of who the characters are and what they're doing, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's I don't need this television series, but there it is.
0: Well, uh, my, uh, my good friend Natalie, who was a um, uh, showrunner for a couple of seasons of Queen of the South, which we also are talking about today, was also yeah. a showrunner for at least a couple of seasons of, of Twelve Monkeys, I think. And um, so I, I'm partial to it. I have a bit of a conflict of interest. I just, I you know, I like seeing friends from film school uh, succeed. And oh, yeah. uh, so. Especially, especially the women, because you know it's it's harder for them. But uh, you know, uh, Twelve Monkeys has its moments. I do think it's uh, it's been a fascinating show. So anyway, that's the the Blu-ray from Mill Creek of the complete series. And uh does not really have a load of extras on it. It's got some, you know, cast auditions which are kind of interesting, but otherwise uh uh it's just the it's just the show. And um you know, it's amazing that a French short film made entirely with still images by an art house guy like Chris Marker winds up becoming a successful television series in the United States. It's yeah. a weird
1: weird road. Uh, Do you did, uh, are you going to keep this Paddington Bear series for 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 Hero the Paddington Bear? So
0: so you know Paddington her first film actually was it was Paddington. Um, we didn't we couldn't get her to sit for all of it. She was like 2 or something at the time. So it was it was you know it was a press screening and they started late cuz some idiot was you know late and they held the film and if if they hadn't held it for him her patience would not have worn out. So we would have been able to see the whole thing. Nonetheless she responded pretty well to Paddington 2. And uh so I haven't shown her the animated Paddington yet. Um we'll see how that goes, but I I do th- I am going to hold on to it uh and let her get a look at it. I didn't really have a great appreciation for Paddington. This is a very very you know, rudimentary animated show. Uh it it just, you know, it, it it's it's not sophisticated. Uh it goes, you know, it, it's very obvious. It's very young. But having seen the, the feature films, the live-action feature films, I think I have kind of a newfound appreciation for it. Uh, it, it certainly is is a, a nice addition to the Warner Archive Collection, and that's Paddington Bear, the complete series. Um, yeah, it's worth checking out. I mean, if you have kids, if you have small kids, it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of nice life lessons, and it's cute. But it, it definitely feels a little bit dated. Uh you know, but I guess I guess it needs to be. The original books were written in the 1950s, so.
1: I like how quiet it is. It's such a quiet series. Yeah. Uh, um, um, as opposed to you know almost any sort of contemporary animation where it's it's constant movement and sound, constant movement and sound.
0: Everything is so busy now. Yeah. It's true. All the Pixar stuff is really really busy. I mean, I love it, but man, it never stops. We just never watch stops. Story. We watched Toy Story 4 last night, and as much as I love it, it really is frenetic. That thing is just all over the place.
1: Yeah, things are always moving, someone is always talking, music is always playing. Um, um, and usually all of them, all at the same time, uh, but certainly in, in some combination of, as opposed to that little Paddington series, there'll be there'll be there'll be ten fifteen second stretches where there'll just be a music cue and Paddington sort of walking along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and nobody's saying anything. Yeah, anyway, yeah.
0: Uh, as long as we're talking we're, we're shouting out to Natalie uh, Natalie did not have anything to do with Queen of the South fourth season but I'll make a mention of it that is out now as well Queen of the South the uh, complete fourth season she left after season three so this is the first season without Natalie I wish I could say uh, that it's still a good show it does feel a little long in the tooth at this point i got to be honest it's um most of the shows are all based on drug deals now, you know, on drug cartels,
1: narc and yeah, yeah,
0: narc and and yeah, and they're all they all they're all kind of starting to overlap in my head a little bit, and I don't know how much you can actually squeeze out of this because Ozark is kind of taken, it's sort of taken over that space, but in a much more interesting way. Um, because it's not set specifically in the world of the drug cartel. You know, that last third season of Ozark kind of merges the Ozarks with Mexico, and it's, it's very interesting. Mm. So, uh, it doesn't leave a lot of space for these shows to necessarily do anything new, since they've already done everything they can do. That said, um, it, it makes a good effort, and, um, it, it doesn't completely run aground. It's just, it's just more of the same. But, uh, there it is. Queen of the South, fourth season. Uh, 13 episodes on three
1: discs. Good, good, good. Uh, let's see. What else have we got here? Jet. Which, 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 which jet is this that oh, we're talking about? Oh, this
0: is, this is, uh, Carlo Gugino's jet, Natural Born oh. Thief from CMAX. Yeah, this is you know I like Carla Gugino. I don't know why she she went to television. She could have still had a really really big film career, but I guess, you know, television is a, a steady a steadier paycheck. Um yeah, this is this is no. This is, you know, uh she plays a thief on this show if anybody hasn't seen it. Cinemax doesn't get like the same traffic that HBO gets, but um yeah, it's it's kind of a a modern film noir series uh about a woman who, you know, has to has to sort of result to being a, a super thief. It's got some good stuff on it. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito is very, very good. And um, yeah, but it's basically you know you're watching it for uh, you're watching it for Carla Gugino, and I love her. I just oh, yeah. I'd like to see her. I'd like to see her in movies again.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Evil was a series that I actually watched the entire first season of. Uh, it yeah, it was actually sort of sort of interesting. So you have this guy who's uh, who's a priest and this woman who's a uh, who's a psychiatrist, and the priest hires her to come work for him uh, to to uh, discern whether or not people who seem to be possessed by demons are in fact possessed by demons or you know in, engaged in some sort of a psychological break. Of course, as far she's concerned, they're always involved in some sort of a psychological break, and uh, it, which he's fine with. But then there are all kinds of strange things that happen. I, I like you have sort of a classic. Um, you know the, the, the network television series sort of build but the acting and the writing is so good and what i like about it is that it never uh, lets either side off the hook it will not give in to him uh, this this sort of catholic priest uh, and it will not give in to her uh, this sort of uh, pragmatic psychiatrist so here's my question if if mike coulter
0: forever lives in my mind as luke cage am <laughs> i going to buy him as a priest
1: to be honest, you will because he's such he's, he's so soft spoken uh, in this film. He, yeah, okay. yeah, standing there with that with that Mike Coulter body. <laughs> he's so soft soft, soft, soft spoken and sweet in this in, in this movie that you kind of buy him uh, sure. as this one time priest uh, who you know is still a true believer, but uh, on working for the Catholic oh. Church to do this kind of okay. thing. So kind of interesting that 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 series. I watched all of that, man. The Sinner
0: is in Season 3, uh, I didn't, I, I don't think I ever really quite processed the Jessica Beale. Was behind this, and she's now a mom again. She and uh, JT just had another kid, another little boy. So congratulations to, to them. But uh, good on her. I, I, you know, this is a this has been a great kind of late career, late stage thing for Bill Pullman to do. Who did a lot of movies and a lot of really fun stuff, and he's older now and more grizzled. So uh, he gets to play a detective, as they all eventually do, and uh, you know, upstate New York detective. And um, it's a it's he, it's all really about. Matt Bomer's in this, too, and he's very, very good. But it really is. It's a Bill Pullman tour de force, you know? You forget what a great actor. He's, he can be so funny, and he can be so presidential. But you forget that he's got a real edge to him as well. And yeah. uh, does a really, really good job here. This is uh, uh, one of those fascinating, you know, uh, down-the-rabbit-hole crime things. It's not quite true detective, but it's not bad either. So The Sinner from Jessica Biel is executive producer. Season three. Still strong in season three.
1: Interesting, interesting, interesting. Is this is this is this a film, The Room, uh, this, uh, that sort of horror drama? Is that that movie about the people about the people who, who who move into this house and there's this room they go into and they get all these that's, they, the, they one. All these, that's the one that's, that's kind of a the creepy one. ass little movie. I talked about yeah. that movie on, on the radio show. It was from uh, Shutter. Uh, uh, not bad at all. That one. Uh, um, uh, the, Olga,
0: Olga Kurylenko and uh, Kevin Jansen's. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, it's it's spooky. Um, Olga Karolenko, I think, is a, is a much better actress than she gets uh, credit for. But yeah, that's what it is. They, uh, they, they, they move into, a, into an old house and find this secret room with, uh, with, with magic powers to sort of make their dreams come true and to materialize things. And uh, next thing you know, careful what you wish for because you might get <laughs> uh, We all know how that, how that turns out. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a creepy idea. Shutter original. Shudder's coming up with a lot of interesting stuff. Curb Your Enthusiasm, man. It just keeps c- clocking on. Tenth season, and it's going into its season 11 now. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's just amazing to me. Larry David, man, he's been a part of television history for like the last 30 years.
1: Oh, good. You got all that Seinfeld, all that Seinfeld.
0: And yeah. even before that, he was on uh, Fridays. Yeah. It goes back to Fridays. I mean, he's just been – Larry David has, has somehow managed to stay at the top of his game on television – for three decades, and and not many people can say they've done that. I, yeah. I, I don't know anybody that's been able to do that. And Bill Cosby might be the only other person who ever managed that feat.
1: Hey, he, I mean, and, and it continues to be relevant all through the, all through the last political season. In any case, because you know some people just stumble into things, and Larry David playing Bernie Sanders of SNL on all that SNL. I mean, it's like they just built that for him. Yeah.
0: Crazy. Well, season ten, I, it's more of the same. I mean, you know, you got all the same people. Jeff Garland's uh, losing a little bit of weight. That's nice to see. And Richard Lewis is is still hanging in there. Uh, and Ted Danson and John Hamm and Vince Vaughn all kind of show up as guest stars. But otherwise, it's still the same show, and it's still sharp, and the writing is still good.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, the basketball wives, I've never understood it, oh, never got gosh. it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, you know, a sort of live story, or any other wives, you don't have basketball wives, so you, you pick the wives uh, that you want. Uh, and it's, but you know, there it is, basketball wives. People love these things, be they reality shows or, or constructed as narrative yeah. sort of shows, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, and you, and what, what can I say? I can't do it. I just can't do it.
0: I, I, I kind of can't either, but, um, you know what I mean? The husbands make money playing basketball. They may as well do something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might as well parlay that into into something. They all they're all gorgeous.
1: I'll oh, it's, it. Look, but look, most of these. First of all, these are the wives of basketball players whose careers have been over for like decades. Some of Shaquille yeah. O'Neal's wife, and and Doug, like so, it's like your know, basketball wives of of lore. <laughs> it's is what this really is. Uh, but you know, whatever people love their soap operas. So what are you going to do? So
0: did you did you watch The Outsider on HBO? The Stephen King?
1: No, I missed that one.
0: So I mean, this is really interesting uh, because it kind of went under the radar. You know, we we grew up in the era of the '80s when when Stephen everything Stephen King was a uh, was a movie, and it was every other month. It was just yeah. like they were making Stephen King stuff left and right and left and right. And now Stephen King sort of apart from it. Uh, in Chapter Two, he's become kind of a TV guy, and yeah. um, this is uh, this is his novel, The Outsider, adapted to a, to a, a, a suspense series, basically, which is all about the investigation into the murder of a boy uh, who, who's found in the woods of Georgia, and um, Jason Bateman plays the um, the high school teacher who is the prime suspect here, and he's really amazing. And I hadn't realized that he had done this somehow in between seasons of Ozark. And he's so different. I mean, you you, you know, Ozark is very Jason Bateman; it's very him, much him doing that understated thing that he does. Mm. Totally different gear here. He's he's really compelling. And Ben Mendelsohn, who usually plays the bad guy, plays the good guy here. He plays the detective. So it's a really kind of a fascinating it's really interesting casting and um there is an additional twist to it here that I'm not going to tell you about uh you got to watch it uh but it, it's it's a it's very very good and it might be the most interesting uh adaptation of Stephen King that I've seen since the since Cronenberg uh, made The Dead Zone. Mm i i it just it really is very compelling it's really interestingly paced and uh it's you know it's nearly five six hours long but it's really really interesting so they they take their time and they really really let it build the outsider um really a terrific stephen king adaptation for for h b o also want to make mention of um some other stuff here that might just go under people's radars. This is this wacky thing. Traditional wild America duck oh, hunting. I was wondering what the hell that was. Traditional wild America duck hunting on the Santee Delta. Um, this is, this is not, uh, duck dynasty. These are, these are actual guys who are duck hunters. They are not bearded and they're not making millions off of duck calls or whatever. They're <laughs> just, they are just literally there in the Santee Delta in South Carolina telling you, explaining to you, how to do duck hunting and, um, it's really it's it. I gotta be honest. I I because I was only accustomed to the Duck Dynasty guys, which is not about yeah, ducks or anything else. It's, it's just all soap opera. There there's a lot to duck hunting. These guys are conservationists. They will yeah. tell you exactly. We are not out here to just destroy the population. We're here to control the population. And this is what you do to take care of the delta. And and it's it's really quite it's really quite interesting. It's a whole world and culture. And it's all it's really interesting. Yeah. Besides that, duck is tasty. I love Duck. I got to be honest. Uh, How to Be a Gentleman: The Complete Series. Uh, I had not heard of this. This is a Paramount series, and uh, it's basically a kind of a mismatched buddy thing of sorts. I. I I don't know. Uh, Kevin Dillon's on it, and I always look at Kevin Dillon. And I always think you're the other Dylan. You're not Matt. Um, <laughs> just, but you know, I mean, it's still basically the uh, the odd couple. That's what it is, and uh, it's cute. It's okay. Uh, this ra- this is about you know uh, nine or ten years old uh, from the from the uh, the era of three camera sitcoms when they were still just about everything on television. Now there's only a few of them left. Might yeah. come back someday. And then also, uh, Russell Simmons' uh, Higher Self series presents the History Makers Collection. Um, This is uh, hosted by James Avery. Did you watch any of this, Tim?
1: A a wee bit of it. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. The late late James Avery. uh, Yeah. uh, played uncle, um, the um, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, yeah.
0: Uh, There's a lot of really, really uh, great stories here. Uh, I mean, these are these are basically uh, the life stories of uh, high achieving, famous uh, Black Americans in a whole. I mean, a lot of them entertainers, but uh, all all over the uh, all over the map. Uh, Dionne Warwick obviously is a a big one, but you got David Dinkins and Maxine Waters and Jesse Jackson Jr. and uh, you know Reverend Al Sharpton. They all show up on here. Harry Belafonte, uh, Vernon Jordan. Morton is on here, and and it's broken down into three different uh, sections, success, faith, and courage. Actually, really, really a very, very interesting show. A lot of fascinating life stories and backgrounds, and it creates quite an interesting uh, tapestry. I was most fascinated by Dr. Alvin F. Poussin.
1: Oh, yeah, Dr. Poussin. Uh, We used to show up um, with Bill Cosby, a uh, whole lot of times way back in the way back in the day, he popped up on Oprah quite a lot uh, to discuss things relevant to uh, you know child, child psychology and yeah and, and fascinating yeah. guy fascinating yeah. guy
0: he shows up uh, twice here under success and courage so uh, really really uh, really really terrific this is three discs the history makers collection hosted by James Avery boy and I'll tell you Al Sharpton sure looks young in this.
1: Yeah. Is, he, is up, that skinny? Up. Is that skinny Al Sharpton or fat yeah, Al? Sharpen? Yeah,
0: kind of, kind uh, of. So yes, he, 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 It's the hair. I always ah. try, not the weight.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, the hair. By the way, for people who don't know, Al, that Al always points out is his homage to James Brown, uh, who was one of his mentors. So the hair is not actually an accident. It's very much on purpose. I'm doing a Frederick Douglass thing myself right about now.
0: <laughs> so we've got three in the, uh, in the kind of animated and kids space right now. Uh, two animated, and then we also have uh, the birth of Ultraman, which oh, yeah. is, which is, uh, effectively the, oh, and, and by the way, there's, um, there is a, a, an Ultraman comic that is coming out from Marvel Comics, uh, next month. Uh, on the the birth of ultraman but this is the rise of ultraman uh which it was it was done when was this made uh, i want to say like 10 years ago but it might be might be longer anyway you can never really tell they all kind of look like they were made in the 70s um but, uh, you know what? I, I, I kind of feel like, uh, here, we, here, we, here we go. This was the, uh, the, 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 this also, oh, oh, you know what? This has an extra on it that I didn't watch. The mm-hmm. Birth of Ultraman, uh, pre-premiere special from, uh, 1966. I gotta watch that. I didn't, oh, I wow. that. Yeah, that's, that's great. Anyway, I mean, look, you can't, you can't go wrong with Ultraman. The Birth of Ultraman, uh, is, is a whole lot of fun.
1: Oh, the <laughs> live-action Ultraman when I was, you know, yeah. a kid, you know, late 60s, or 70s, it was, it was, you know, uh, it, and it, every, every single one was the same. The, the, the light on his chest would start blinking and he would have to fight, will it go out before he can finish he'd get, Then he'd have to fly toward the sun to recharge it. It was just all yeah. fantastic
0: it's it's uh it's a thing um so the last year here a complete series of the legion of superheroes and uh the complete first and second seasons of final space so legion of superheroes is dc stuff uh obviously it's um by the way the, i i did finally i forgot to mention i did finally finish and this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler turn it off for 30 seconds uh till i get out of this i did finally watch the uh the complete arc uh, of uh, across the, the 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 arrowverse of uh Oh yeah. Yeah, the multiverse series. Love, I love that they ended it on Super Friends. Ah. We had, I love <laughs> Super Friends homage at the end of it. That was a whole lot of fun. Um, so anyway, I wish there was a little bit more of that in the animated Legion of Superheroes, the complete series, but uh there isn't. It's still fine but I'm I do feel like they're stretching some of the uh the DC world the animated the DC Marvel uh, DC Comics world a little bit too thin on the on the animated uh thing. Um, you know this this is kind of a short-lived series just as well. Um, I think about you know 6 hours is about 5 5 hours is about all you can really squeeze out of it. Uh the complete first and second seasons a final space Is actually quite a lot of fun. Uh, we need more wacky space comedy. We need, need more stuff that feels like, uh, Family Guy and Simpsons in space. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. Uh, so hopefully we'll get more of this. I don't know if there's going to be a third season. I sure hope there will be. Uh, this definitely is, is definitely fills a void. Um, in the few couple minutes we have left, Tim, I want to make mention of some Kino stuff. Yeah, yeah, quickly. Most notably, the wonderful movie, The Public Eye. Oh wow. Which, with Joe Pesci, which is so underrated. My mother in law has a wonderful, um, she was an extra in this, but she's, she's like a featured extra. She's like.
1: 1992. That movie, uh, that movie just really did not get the respect it deserved oh, no. back then. The, the critical sort of respect that it deserved back, back then for a whole bunch of different reasons. But it's just really a sharp, sharp movie, uh, Joe Pesci in that Howard Franklin film.
0: It's, it's based loosely on the exploits of the photographer Ouija, who was a, you know, a, a legendary, uh, freelance news photographer, crime photographer in the 1940s. And Joe Pesci plays lead. It's fictionalized, of course. It's a little bit of a film noir. Barbara Hershey, The Femme Fatale. Uh, but boy, what a stylish, beautiful movie. It's so well made. Howard Franklin, such a good director. I wish he were still doing a lot of stuff. Uh, primarily a Bill Murray. Um, team guy, but, uh, executive produced by Robert Zemeck is just a wonderful, wonderful movie. I, I, one of the best films of the 90s, so underrated. The public eye with Joe Pesci might be the best performance Joe Pesci has ever given. Mm. Um, Sissy Spacek in Raggedy Man with Eric Roberts and Sam Shepard. This is from 1981. Also a really, really beautiful film uh, that I don't think gets enough credit. Directed by Jack Fisk, by the way. Yeah. Jack Fisk, uh, legendary production designer and husband of Sissy Spacek. Still does all of Terrence Malick's movies. Worked with David Lynch for a very long time. Jack Fisk's sister was David Lynch's first wife. Um, so that's how all that, all that plugs together. But Jack Fisk directed Raggedy Man, did a beautiful job, I don't know why he doesn't direct anymore, but boy, what a what a lovely, lovely kind of rural poetry uh, this is. It's um, you know, Sissy Spacek as a as a young mother and and you know trying to raise her sons, and then this man enters her life. Uh, it's it's just a it's a really really great film. One of those great nineteen early nineteen eighties films that we always uh, kind of forget
1: about. Sam Shepard and Tracy Walter and just all all of the uh, young Henry young Henry Thomas. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's good.
0: And this has an audio commentary on it by Howard Berger and Nathaniel Thompson. A couple others here to to, uh, make mention of. Um, I'm going to pull out just these four and we're going to go out on these four. First off, Diva. By Jean-Jacques Benex, which has, is loaded with extras. This is one of the great French films of the 1980s, also 1981, has an audio commentary by Benex, who is terrific. I have met Benex. His former agent is a, is a, is a friend of ours, and we, we actually spent a dinner at his house once. He knew I was a Benex fan, so he invited us over, and we sat there with Benex and his wife, and just had a great conversation at dinner. One of the highlights of my life, having... Yeah. Dinner- a private dinner with Jean-Jacques Benex And he's a genius. He doesn't make enough movies. But that's his right. Uh, loads of stuff on here. There's uh, an, another audio commentary with film critic Simon Abrams. Vladimir Cosma, the uh, composer, is interviewed. Tons and tons of interviews here with with the actors and, and others. Um, it's just loaded with extras. It is a fantastic film. It is a highly stylish film. It kind of reinvented French film in the 1980s and uh, if there's just nothing like Diva, we oh. also have Robert Duvall's Oscar winning performance in Tender Mercies, uh, oh, directed, wow. by Bruce, oh. directed by Horton. But I used to think this film was as slow as watching paint dry, and I kind of love it now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's one. one. It's, it's it's a beautiful movie, uh, and and illustrative because you know this is this is what like the early eighties, eighty two, eighty three, something 83. like that, eighty three. Uh, uh, you know, just uh, Bruce Bears for it, man. Just wow. You know, we forget about these people. He's 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 from that era too. That Alan Parker yeah. uh, era that we were talking about. He's one. Of, yep. He's one of those guys from that from that period too. Yep. Horton Foot, of course. Uh, uh, the, the 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 writer yeah, it, it's, it's, incredible, fantastic. yeah. Uh, Lorenzo's Oil, George Wilford Miller. Grimley, of course, in that movie, too. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. You, True. You know, well, yeah. Uh,
0: Lorenzo's Oil, George Miller. The, maybe the one time that George Miller didn't go full genre. You know, George Miller has done animated films, Happy Feet, the Mad Max films, Witches of Eastwick, but he also made an incredibly moving movie in Lorenzo's Oil because he used to be a doctor and he was, he was motivated to, by the story of these parents who, um, did what the medical establishment could not do, which was make progress and finding a cure for the bizarre, strange disease that uh, is devastating their son. And um Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon play the parents. This movie just brings me to tears. It is yeah. so powerful. It is so devastatingly beautiful. And George Miller directs the hell out of it. This is one of the best films of the 90s. 1992 was a, a great year, and uh, this is one of the best films of that year. I, I mean, I, I remember you and I just both loved this movie at the time, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, a, a beautiful movie. Peter Ustinoff, of the late Peter Ustinoff. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. And then
0: uh, just uh, the last two here, Cry Freedom. As long as we were talking about Mississippi Burning, Cry Freedom uh, caught a lot of flack for for some of the same things, which is that here's a movie ostensibly, you know, this was Richard Attenborough's attempt to kind of get back in the in the Gandhi groove, and he wanted to tell the story of uh, Stephen Biko, but it's not Hmm. really the story of Stephen Biko. Stephen Biko was killed, so this winds up being the story of Stephen Biko's friend. Um, a journalist played by, uh, Kevin Klein, yeah. who has Down to escape, yeah. who has to escape South Africa to bring the story of Stephen Biko to the world. Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that story, but, um, and I do love the film, I especially love the music, but as long as people know going in that it's not the story of Stephen Biko, it's, it's the story of a, Guy bringing bringing the story of Stephen Biko to the world, and it's kind of a, it's
1: sort of a one note movie. Yeah, Stephen Biko played by Denzel Washington, relatively speaking, young Denzel Washington, probably coming off Saint Elsewhere or something yep. like that.
0: Well, this is uh, his first, yeah. first big kind of starring thing that, that moved him from Saint Elsewhere back into movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, a, a movie I appreciate, but again, uh, wonderful filmmaking. Uh, but you but, made the wrong movie with yes. the elements you had. You made the wrong movie.
0: So I'm going to go out on this, Tim. Um, the the original for a 4K restoration of the original uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1916, silent 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, really a shockingly good movie, 86 minutes long, gripping, has an audio commentary by uh, Anthony Slide, film historian. Um, this is a this is a, another one from Kino. And uh, uh, a great new score by Orlando Perez Rosso. Just an utterly fascinating, fascinating take of the story that is quite different from the Disney film, which I just watched yesterday with Hero. She was terrified of the giant squid, finally mustered up the courage to sit down. We watched it. She wound up loving it. (laughs) And then she watched the black hole right afterwards. And meh. Not so much.
1: Yeah, no.
0: really. Uh, but really, this is quite good. Um, it, it's, it, you know, I had never seen this before. I obviously knew about it, so it's wonderful to see it kind of back to back with the Disney film. You realize how very, very different it is and how many different ways there are to, to do a telling of the story. But the production value at the time for 1916 really nailed it. They, they, they did a great job. This is a, a beautiful transfer, so well, good on everybody there, good on Kino, uh, for bringing it to us. Universal's, uh, incredible 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea from 1916. Yeah, not that character.
1: long after Jules Verne would have written that story. Actually, no, true. You know, that would yeah. be that's
0: like a like a modern novel
1: at the time. Really? All right, well, that should do it for
0: uh, for the next little while. Uh, we'll be back hopefully in a week or two and and uh, with some other stuff. Tim, uh, what do you got planned this week? Any great anything huge on your social calendar?
1: Uh, well, you know what? I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna sit here. When I'm not sitting here, I think I'm gonna sit over there. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then I'll, I'll probably move back to here. <laughs> that, that's more or less what I'm gonna be doing. School actually starts back up for me. Uh, uh, teaching, um, I'll, I'll be teaching online, um, a, a course that starts on uh, August 24th. Uh, and it looks like I have, a, I have enough students, uh, signed up to. So I'll be teaching online, uh, a sort of Zoom, uh, course completely. I've always taught a little bit on Zoom, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, but it'll be the first time I've done it whole and completely. So uh, I'm sort of prepping for all of that to see what happens. Great. Well, good luck with that.
0: Hopefully we uh, we pull ourselves out of this uh, sooner rather than later. It'll be good to see your face again, and uh, it'd be good to get uh, get the shows back on a regular track again. But in the meantime, everybody stay safe. Follow whatever health and safety guidelines uh, you've got going in your area, and uh, we will see you guys next week. Make a